Finding Rarities, written and recorded by James Wollstonecroft. Each autumn, during my retirement in the late 70s and early 80s of last century, was given over to worshipping the gods of migration. My personal homage to birds, and to the greatest wonder of the known world, that evoked by vismig, by visible migration. I was indeed fortunate in being able to enjoy my retirement before taking on work. Clearly, at least so far as I could see, life on Earth was not going to get steadily better and better and better as the propaganda machinery of the dominant Western culture relentlessly sought to proclaim. It seemed to me that anyone with a serious interest in our living planet, in nature and wildness, could not fail to appreciate the consequences of shocking information that was being revealed on an almost daily basis. Anyway, my departure from normal life took place in 1977 and followed a period of great disillusionment which set in during my self-imposed incarceration at a highly respected medieval university in eastern England. I vividly recall one dull day at the end of October in 1976. On a grey street in that fine historic city of Spires, one formerly surrounded by the richest wetland in all of England, but now far away in space as well as time. Anyway, a postcard appeared in my hands from a good friend, who I had first met at Easter 1970 on a young ornithologist's ten-day trip to the Neisiedlerse in eastern Austria. This postcard was an aerial photograph taken from the south of a tiny island of Celtic fields and heathy moor adrift in a soft blue sea. There was Horse Point of Agnes, an isle who had, through no fault of her own, become known as Saint Agnes in the Isles of Scilly. Here our family had once spent our proper holiday in the late summer of that same year, 1970. Horse Point happens to be the southernmost land, a lichen-encrusted granite tour, an eminence of rounded weathered boulders, the southernmost point in all of post-glacial Britain. On the back side of the postcard, written in neat blue biro, was a friend's annotated list of silly rarities seen over the past three weeks. My three weeks past had yielded no highlights, avian or otherwise. So I begged two birder friends, not embedded in the ranks of the university, for a lift up to the North Norfolk coast that coming weekend. It turned out to be a really great weekend, providing two lifers, but that's another story. Then and there with the postcard, in that grey street, those bird names of beings so recently incarnate, some names archaic now, e.g. Indian tree pivot, unhinged what was left of my window on success, and in an instant freed me from a square life of framed ambitions. After leaving uni, the fall of 1977 found me ensconced in California, birding daily and studying hard, swatting up near Arctics, usually whilst in the back seat on the freeways with luminaries like Paul Neiman and Louis Bevere, each of us attentive to the optical brilliance of established local bird finders Guy McCaskey and John Dunn. I finally left California that fall owing to a certain homesickness, specifically the need to surround myself with old friends, a pining for old world genera and species. 
It was October the 28th, 1978, before I eventually made it back onto St Agnes and the fabled Isles of Scilly. I stayed for two windswept weeks in a tiny cottage, which was called The Hump, because it perches on the top of Agnes. I stayed with a bearded birder named Paul Dukes, a man who has found, there on Agnes, more new birds for the British list than one might imagine possible. Thereafter, my fate was sealed, and each autumn... I managed to join with other pilgrims on the pathway to the Isles of Scilly. And undeniably, unfailingly, each autumn, the birding experiences garnered on Scilly formed the zenith of my year. More than once over the years, in those autumnal weeks, a solemn vow was taken. Once in a force nine gale, within a swirling mass of curled ruby-red leaves of the now-endangered Cornish elm. A vow that one day I would try to write something worthwhile about such brilliant times. Specifically, about the revelations. Many outside the scope of mundane mainstream birding. Revelations which were discerned in those now distant days by many of my age class. Scilly, as she became to us birders, is an archipelago in the northeast Atlantic straddling the imaginary 50th line of latitude between 27 and 35 miles west-southwest of the British main island. The islands lie on the very edge of Europe, in an equable climate which has benefited from the Gulf Stream. They face America, and like other preeminent vagrant traps, have a full 360-degree catchment area from which they gather migrant birds. Frost is rare, and the vegetation largely devised and nurtured by a century of dedicated human action, is in places quite lush and almost always green. Consequently, birds that arrive there find cover and some food, and survive long enough that they may be found, especially if there's an army of keen observers searching for them. Every year between 1978 and 1991, from late August until the middle of November, my close companions and I might have been observed each day somewhere on the Isles. Most likely, quite exposed on one of the motor launches that connect St Mary's to the four inhabited off-islands of Tresco, Briar, St Martins and Agnes. Or less easily, whilst haunting the rustic waysides and headlands that fringe the busier main island of St Mary's. Or perhaps we might have been scoped whilst dodging across the higher or lower moors, wet areas, which occupy the two big valleys on the main island. Myself, diving, secateurs in hand, into some forbidden tangled clump of goat willow, on a quest for some rare philoscopus. You had to be furtive even then, for there was no right to roam on Scilly, the islands being part of the Duchy of Cornwall, so that the land remained in the thrall to the laws of an alien monarchy and the obscure needs of one Charles, Prince of Wales. During the day, I was most definitely peripheral to the birder throng, though in the evenings the lure of the pub, and less often the log, could prove compelling. In daylight, even when a really good bird was showing well, I was always at the margin of those tangled knots of the greenish-brown masculinity that periodically surged along the narrow roads, or leaned in lines against old stone walls peering into little fields, clogging the smaller lanes. The woolly hats and sour-smelling wax-jacket uniforms of Britain's fast-lane twitcher society whose ranks multiplied massively during periods of active vagrancy, when suddenly, briefly, they would descend on Scilly, choppering in and choppering out on board the red and white and blue of British Airways Sikorsky. 
The chief umbies, upwardly mobile birders, would always appear on the islands in the wake of a major migrant fallout, typically arriving just as things were being found in the clear northwesterly sector a day or two after the eastward passage of a major Atlantic cyclone into Biscay. Or less often on a warm and grimy southeasterly breeze drifting out of continental Europe to the south of a Baltic high, a blocking anticyclone. In some of the better autumns there would be such an arrival on three or even four occasions. Umbies, whilst being for the most part excellent observers, were primarily dedicated to enlarging their already large British, and later their world, lists. And therefore, as the culture of the increasingly affluent 80s reinforced such drives, more and more of them opted to remain at work throughout October. By remaining at work in cities and towns on the British mainland, rather than wasting valuable holiday birding time on a duff spell in Scilly, they could more rapidly redeploy themselves, often overnight, to islands and headlands near and far. Places where individuals of a patient and rapidly growing band of dedicated patchworkers would once in a while strike it lucky and discover a major national rarity, one that by definition almost everybody needed. Even a first for Britain. And on the mainland too. Known as cripplers or blockers, i.e. they were on very few people's lists, in those cruel cold or post-war days, such birds have become known as megas in the cool order, warm world parlance of PC detachment. Yet one suspects that most of the other birders, whenever they were there on Scilly, were benefiting just as I was. Benefiting not only from the blessings of bearing witness to the best annual assortment of sibes and yanks anywhere outside the Bering Sea, but also from the chance of finding their own rarities at the annual jamboree. I believe that the chase, the sport of chasing rare birds, of searching for, finding, identifying, and most important, of sharing the experience of finding rarities in the field. Now on Scilly this was undertaken on foot entirely without private motorised transport. This experience can be a unique and yet daily challenge and such a great joy, a real privilege that many of us eagerly anticipated each year as the month of October drew near. For well over a decade Scilly remained the best, the most enjoyable, most sociable place in all the world the place in which to play this delightful birding game. Of course we knew that the majority of these rare birds each autumn would be doomed first years, disoriented or misdirected juveniles of globe-spanning migrant species that by ill fate become one area's super rarities. Birds from far distant and in those days enduringly mysterious lands, inaccessible, they hailed from human nations not at all like ours. These included nearly all the accidental species, which were given only cursory treatment at the very back of Peterson, Mountford and Hollam, the first field guide of those times. That we could see vagrants and extreme vagrants that we had first heard of in our 60s childhood seemed almost unbelievable. A fancied glimpse of any one of which had occasionally graced the dreams of our birding apprenticeship in those earlier years. The fact that almost all of these individuals, especially the mirror image vagrants from Russia, searching for Indo-Chinese jungles bursting with invertebrate life, and the often dazed-looking cuckoos and thrushes, blown over from North America, would soon drown in our cold northern ocean or starve to death in some leafless wood, added haunting pathos to the experience of finding and watching these most highly desirable avian vagrants. 
However, one can choose to look at this whole rarity hunting phenomenon in another way, one that is both less sporting, less fanciful, and yet to me, even more encouraging. The birds, at least collectively, are not in any real way doomed, and we are celebrating the annual revolution of life itself when we search for them. Autumn avian vagrants of any species, appearing in any part of the whole Arctic, are representatives of a vanguard of pioneers who, whether by genetic idiosyncrasies or by falling victim, occasionally en masse, to the vicissitudes of changing weather patterns and climatic realignment, find themselves one dawn flying over seas and land where very few of their ancestors have travelled before. Ever-changing environments occasionally enable some of the pioneer minority, somewhere way off course, to survive the winter, the non-breeding season, and return whence they came, or very occasionally to establish a breeding site in a different part of the globe. They are therefore both a part of the great seasonal sacrifice and also a measure of the success of a species in any one breeding season. They are the harvest and also part of the seed crop. Searching for and finding these autumnal waifs and strays on remote islands and headlands, oases and deltas around the northern hemisphere each October seems to me a worthy pursuit in itself. It is a great tribute both to the special beauty and vitality of the birds, and to the aliveness of our own people, our birders. A pursuit as alive and meaningful as any human activity can be. In fact, I now feel that this pursuit is about as close as we can get in the British Isles and Atlantic Europe, and doubtless elsewhere, to an unselfconscious participation in the annual celebration of that most important Gaelic festival, Samhain. Samhain marks the end of summer light and of evident plant growth and the beginning of the dark half of the year. Evidence of this festival stretches back into the times of our Brythonic ancestors and of course at that time doubtless it existed in a similar form amongst almost all the diverse ethnic groups of the Northlands. Undoubtedly in form, if not in name, it was practised farther back through the vastness of the Bronze Age and Neolithic times, and farther still, even into the very emergence of our communicated awareness of the seasons and our place within the chase, to the dawn of our humanity. Thus we, the birders, celebrate All Souls' Eve, the Halloween, our own extended harvest festival, which pays tribute to the decline of summer and marks the onset of winter. It is our version of the Gaelic Samhain, and of ever more ancient rites hiding in the mists beyond. In so doing, we may receive an in-depth education in birds, bird law and birding, and in much else besides, which, as it pours into the Gulf Stream currents of our collective memory or tribal consciousness, helps sustain us, enables our recollection of the thrills of the ancient hunt, a chase now dressed in fairly benign if not in passive garb, and connects us to the essence of being alive on this earth. Rarity hunting was, and for many it remains, no matter where we are, an extremely rewarding investment of our free time and of any surplus energy. Memories of many seasons, searching for autumn vagrants on Scilly, in my late youth's retirement, and latterly in Shetland, western Spain and elsewhere, 
hopefully will remain with me always as dearly cherished memories. Patch birding, for in reality everywhere you bird is in that moment your patch, and rarity finding require that certain commitment of energy, discipline and training that many continue to find exciting even in later life, despite it usually being by then at best somewhat erratically pursued. As all too frequently our training, or mine at least, is interrupted by various adult responsibilities. Nevertheless, it remains a fiery core inside an aging heart. And thus, my friends, a toast at this semaine to the departed, to spring, our queen, and to avian evolution. Thank you for downloading this recording, which is available at greatguides.org. This material is copyright and may not be duplicated. All rights reserved. Recorded in Arusha, Tanzania, 2010.